Hello and welcome to Made to Measure, the podcast of the Journal of Trading Standards. I'm Paul Evans. This week's episode is the first in a two-part look at the work of the CTSI Business Members Group and the relationship between trading standards practitioners and the businesses they advise. We'll be speaking to Wendy Potts, CTSI Joint Lead Officer for Fair Trading and Chair of the BMG, about how compliance on consumer protection is a team effort. Enforcement professionals, whether they're in trading standards, the Competition and Markets Authority or the Advertising Standards Authority, work closely with retailers and manufacturers to ensure that regulation is effective for everybody. Among other things, Wendy discusses the importance of compliance to businesses' reputations, the pertinent facts around pricing and promotions, and the challenges of advising businesses on issues like Brexit and coronavirus. In part two, released in a fortnight's time, we'll be hearing more from Wendy, as well as trading standards practitioner Steve Emmett, who discusses his involvement with the BMG and talks about how he advises companies, specifically in the area of food safety and allergens. But for now, Wendy kicks things off with an explanation of her various roles. My name's Wendy Potts. My working life, I'm a director for Legalise, and we are consultants giving advice to businesses in relation to trading standards issues. My um, roles currently for CTSI, I'm the lead officer, fair trading, specialising in pricing. I'm uh, the chair of the business members group, BMG, and I'm currently vice chair of the Institute of the um, Trading Standards Council, hoping to move up to being chair from September this year. So, Wendy, could you tell us a bit about what the business members group is and why it was set up? We set up in 2005. At the time, we became aware of an increasing amount of people not working in enforcement roles, working for businesses or, like myself, for consultancies advising businesses. So what we came to see as as one of those people was a professional isolation in that you could be sitting on your own in a company with no one to talk to, no one to bounce things off, no one to have a moan to, so about your professional uh, work. So we realised that there was a, a need for some networking within people in similar roles within businesses. So the group was set up for that. The other aspect was representation within the Institute, because when you're not sitting in a local authority, you lose out on some of the networking and the information sharing. So we realised that people weren't on email groups, etc. So weren't getting information necessarily via branches or via um, the National Institute. How often does the BMG meet up? We have two full meetings a year where we have speakers that are able to update us on what's going on. One of the big differences between a trading standards professional in a, in a business situation than in an enforcement situation is that we need to know about legislation before it happens. And so we can advise businesses how to get ready for legislation rather than for an enforcement role. Um, you need to know about it once it's in place and then you can work out how to challenge any business that that, that isn't compliant. So so that's that that would be a big difference. So our meeting our meetings we try and make sure people or members are aware of any consultations on new legislation that they might want to feed into any upcoming legislation that, that they need to know about be- before it comes in. And, and our members, many of them have been in uh, trading stands a long time and have become quite specialists. So they 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 know what they're talking about. They're really 
want to be part of any consultation, etc. So the group is, a, as I say, two things, professional networking, so as we've got someone to talk to, and um, the, the other aspect is the representation within the Institute. So yes, we have two meetings a year, and then we have our AGM at, at um, Training Standards Symposium, and so we, we get together then, but that is just an AGM and a sponsored event. So we, we have a bit of a drinks reception at that as well. So what sorts of background do the members of the BMG tend to come from? Do a lot of them represent retailers? It's not just retailers. Some of them are manufacturers. So we've got some members who work for manufacturers and they will advise. Their main role is going to be or would be advising on compliance of the product, labelling of the product. But they would also have the role as a horizon scanner, somebody that knows what's going on and what's coming along and can advise the business on whether to do it. They might also, in that sort of manufacturing company, they might have a role in in auditing or with um, any that, that sort of compliance as well in, in terms of uh, standards liaising maybe with retailers that they supply to in, in terms of quality and, and compliance. And then within a retail environment, they will do whatever needs to be done. They might specialise in, in the food labelling, signing off um, food labelling and specifications in relation to own label products. But they will be involved in everything that involves trading standards, whether it's um, age-restricted sales, advertising, pricing, labelling, um, every aspect of, of, of trading standards. And, and depending on the size of the company and how many people are employed in that role, they might find themselves picking up other legal bits and pieces, maybe environmental health, health and safety, other, other types of roles as well, because they're seen as a sort of legal person. And they will deal with any enforcement challenges that come through and li- any liaison maybe with primary authority or with, with any um, inspections that happen. Have the cuts to trading standards resources made relationships between regulators, enforcers and businesses more important? Do you have any examples of how this works practically? There is um, undoubtedly less inspections going on out there. In terms of trading standards, there are less actual cases. That doesn't mean to say there, are, there aren't any challenges that, that go on for business. There are other um, national bodies, the, the Competition Markets Authority, the CMA, the Advertising Standards Authority, who, who would be challenging business as well. And I feel that my members, the members of, of the business members group within a company are part of the compliance role in they are trading standards officers through and through and they will want that business to be compliant. So they are there ensuring compliance when even despite no um, enforcement action, they would ensure that, that compliance reta- is retained um, and that that's part of their role to persuade the business to, to keep the business compliance within its activities. So it has changed things, undoubtedly. I mean, primary authority is, is ever growing. So that is a, a, a different relationship. So that's uh, more similar, I guess, to um, a relationship a business member might have in an advisory role telling businesses how to comply or advising businesses how to comply rather than taking any action when, when they don't comply. And, and I think that that has changed in the last 10 to 15 years that the idea of advising businesses how to do it rather than finding something that's gone wrong and prosecuting them as a way of of persuading them how to do it so there is that cooperation is a change and obviously business members 
are accustomed to that and have worked in that and so so that that is a move that business members have have moved along with as well at the same time no business wants to 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 risk prosecution they are aware that reputation can be almost as valuable as as any other asset that the company have got and any market share they hold can be affected by that so they at all costs would would want to avoid any any formal legal action in that way but that isn't the main thing that that would drive a business towards compliance the fear of that isn't isn't enough they it's treating customers fairly the level playing field or all, all those sorts of things that they that they w- would want to do if they if they're a good business they would want to do it and and people f- with trading stands professionals advise them how to go go th- you know keep that and would would encourage that within the business do you think perhaps businesses are more aware of their reputations than ever when it comes to compliance because of social media I mean, anyone can go on Twitter if they have a complaint about a company and potentially broadcast that to millions of people. Yeah, I mean, as a business, it must be frustrating for the the, the sometimes minor things that, that really create a, a storm on Twitter compared to some of the more important things that 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 or even good works that they're doing that that they can't get out there. But so so yeah, obviously they that the, in this age of social media, anything can get out there really quickly, things can change really fast. It takes years to build up a good reputation and with consumers and it can be lost really quickly. And yes, of course, then that, so the whole social media aspect of, of the way we are now, yeah, affects affects how businesses feel. It's not something certainly that I would rely on as, a, as an advisor to say, well, if you don't do this, you'll end up on, on Twitter. It, it's not, um, it, it, it it, it's part of that and, and I guess you don't really need to tell businesses that they know that already so it's part of, of what's going on and and it just means that anything any action that is taking place if there was a court case it widely talked about so so very quickly that the the news spread so yeah businesses are very much aware of that you've already mentioned legal eyes could you tell us a bit about that and the work that you do on behalf of business clients I always say I've, I've two sorts of clients I've clients who want to get it right, who want to run every piece of marketing material past us, um, advertising, labelling, um, promotions past us before they go to press or to print or online. So so, so that's one type of client. I focus on non-food. So anything, um, so because food labelling is a very particular skill that, that I've never specialised in. So, so my focus and my clients tend to be retailers outside the, the food retailing sector. And my other type of client is a client who, who's got a, a trading standards challenge or a challenge from Advertising Standards Authority maybe, and they want help in, in dealing with that and then moving forward into how to make sure that they do better going forwards. Because most of the clients that legalise are s- smaller companies, they, they don't have someone internally that they've employed um, on a full-time basis to do the role. So so they use a company like mine to advise them as, as somebody would, would within a business, but, but they just don't need it full-time. So, so they would ask me to do that. So so it can it depends on the retailer. It is mainly retailers. I've got some manufacturers, but it's mainly retailers. And, and, and they come to me with all sorts of questions. Sometimes it's not really a trading standards issue, but it's something that um, at least I can signpost to 
but you do sort of become a, a the advisor within the business. So, and you develop good relationships with clients and learn how to advise them, particular to their to their relationship with their consumers. They they have different, you know, different businesses have different things. So you you adapt your advice according and your vocabulary in terms of advice according to 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 them and what they need. Would you say there's any particular area in which staying on top of compliance involves more challenges than others do? I think food has to be the main one. The food labelling changes so rapidly. I mean, you think of even what's going on with food allergens or organic or vegan. So, so there's there's always seems to be something new on the horizon in terms of food labelling. So so yeah, that that changes very rapidly and and obviously consumers are very much aware of it so they need to get it right so so yeah i would say that's one of the most difficult ones which is why people tend to advise on just food labeling because it's such a huge area that they're not going to also advise on pricing or sales promotions or non-food product safety they tend to specialize in food labeling because it is such a huge area and such a huge risk and and it is an area that changes regularly and rapidly and who knows what's what's going to be next now that we're out of the EU. Well, Steve Emmett's a trading standards practitioner who specialises in advising businesses about compliance when it comes to food. Um, we'll be hearing from him in part two of this episode in a couple of weeks' time. But Wendy, since you mentioned Brexit, is that something that your clients are particularly concerned about? And is there anything you're able to advise them around it? Clients talk to me about issues around EU exit, around issues of importation of goods. Obviously, um, coronavirus is hitting us, so importation of goods from China. So, so those sorts of issues. So the EU exit, because the clarity we haven't got yet. We don't know what, what is going to change or what isn't going to change. What we do know is that when changes do happen, that they we will have time to adapt in terms of product and product labelling, we will be given time to, to adjust. And we we obviously rely on that. So, yeah, at the moment, it, it's hard to know what's going to change. It's hard to know where parliamentary time will be spent because what, what we will get out of the EU is obviously opportunity to change legislation requirements as we choose. Obviously, we will align ourselves to a particular market at some point and we'll want to comply be it with the EU, then we'll, we will stick with with where we are in terms of EU, in terms of labelling and product safety, etc. But other things in more internally can change that are based on EU regulations. But it depends just on, on timing and what's going to happen and what's seen as priority. So within this field particularly, I can't see changes happening quickly. Some things will change, obviously, things like um, addresses on foods, those sorts of things, because does it need to be a UK address? Obviously, couldn't it still be an EU address? All, all those sorts of things will, they, they will change, but hopefully we'll get time to adjust. But but it, yeah, it is a period of, of change with undoubtedly some unexpected things and some more predictable things will change. Now, you mentioned coronavirus. Obviously, as we speak, that's a constantly changing situation. But is there anything you can advise businesses about the kind of things they should be thinking about over the coming weeks? For me, I would, you know, focus on is there any trading standards issue in this? And if there isn't, then the business has to work out its best course of action. And in terms of, for example, with a prize draw, you just need to make sure the terms and conditions are worded in such a way so as it's flexible and the consumer knows what they're going to get if that prize isn't isn't available. So it, it can be the most 
obscure things that are affected by something like um, the coronavirus. It, it's it's um, it's amazing. We we are a, a small world, so things are, are maybe more affected than people might expect. I know that one of the main things you focus on through Legal Eyes is giving businesses advice around pricing. What are the main issues to be aware of in this area? There hasn't been much enforcement action in relation to pricing for, for quite a while. Certainly by trading standards, the um, CMA have done some work over the last few years in relation to drip pricing. They um, took on Ryanair and um, changed the 99p flight to Dublin advert that didn't include non-optional charges like taxes, um, etc. That That's been tackled. And drip pricing in its broadest sense, if you're shopping online and or even, for example, I don't know, if you're having double glazing fitted, that there's, that there's non-optional extras that, that need to be added in that you're not told about up front, then, then that would be, um, in my opinion, that would be an offence under their consumer protection from unfair trading regs. So, so those, as, as we shop in more and more complex ways, then clarity in pricing like that becomes more and more difficult. And some retailers will want to we'll look around and see what everybody else is doing and think, well, we'll do it like that because everybody else is doing it. And it might not be the most upfront information that, that they could give if they, th- if they think other people aren't doing it. A lot of the challenge in relation to pricing is coming from the Advertising Standards Authority at the moment. So they will, will take action if they feel that, that the pricing is, is something that's, that's misleading. Other areas... It would be reference pricing, high-low pricing, sale, half-price sale, those sorts of things. And that is covered by the CTSI Pricing Practice Guidance, which I um, was involved with back in 2016. That is has been out there. It's, it's relatively well received and complied with. At the time, we were in the EU and... It comes from um, a di- the directive on unfair trading, so it's that's a maximum harmonisation directive. So we couldn't go over and above it at the time, which was a constant discussion around drafting of the guidance. There was cries for it to be more specific in terms of of how we're advised business. So now out of the EU, there is that is one area that could be reviewed because we're not controlled by. Um, or constrained by maximum harmonisation anymore. So that might change, as I said before, whether there's an appetite for it, whether there's parliamentary time for it, whether anybody wants to do it is, is another matter. But, but they're areas of, of interest in terms of pricing at the moment. Are there any particular types of retailer that are more prone to pricing compliance issues than others? I'm thinking of things like furniture retailers that seem to have a sale on for 365 days of the year. So there are sectors that do seem to be trapped in the high-low pricing thing, as you say, particularly big-ticket furniture is one, and they seem to be caught in a cycle of, of of sales. I mean, there are ways of doing it right, and they you know, will be advised on how to do it right. They were certainly part of the review process when we reviewed the guidance. So they're interested in, and they want everybody else to be doing the same as them or certainly no worse than they are. So there are sectors that are caught in that. There are other sectors that we see less of it. I mean, in terms of the drip pricing I mentioned earlier, that tends to be more of an issue that you'll find online um, because 
different things apply as as you go through a process of, of purchasing something online, which gives, I guess, more opportunity for, for, for adding in charges later. And there is action, going back to the CMA, there is action or has been action recently on re- t- on ticket pricing, um, reselling of tickets. So th- there are sectors out there that it's felt need to change and that or could be doing it better. So 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 yeah, there there are instances out there, and and yeah, as you said, there there are sectors that do se- seem to be caught up in a in a bit of a price war with each other. I think as much as as with the consumer, there have been a few prosecutions around high-low pricing, where it was found that what the retailer was claiming to be the high price is actually more likely to be the the, the genuine um, price of the goods. There have been challenges by uh, which magazine raised a super complaint against the supermarkets in terms of their pricing, the, the, the big five supermarkets, and challenged them around more multi-buy issues some challenge around reference pricing so so there have been cases i observe i'm not i don't know everyone would agree i think the supermarkets have got a lot better since then there is less of the cycle of some products are constantly in sale there are you do tend to find that they that any discount revolves around the whole aisle of crisps or biscuits or whatever it is rather than it just being one particular product that cycles around pricing there does seem to be a bit less of the the feverish price reduction and when you've got supermarkets like Aldi and Lidl that don't really do much high low pricing then then the other the, the biggest supermarket chains maybe have taken something from that and realized that that it's not all about high low pricing that you can give consumers good value and good deals without having to claim a higher price or some sort of multi-buy offer, et cetera. So, so there have been cases over the last few years. Now, where does an RRP come from, as in who sets it? And does a retailer have any obligation to adhere to it? If you're a, a retailer and you've got goods and you're quoting an RRP, then that RRP can't be your RRP. It must be recommended by the manufacturer normally or at least the maybe the importer into the UK whatever so so and you would compare to that that there wouldn't be any I wouldn't advise there would need to be any timeline for how long that had been offered for before as a you could sell it at a discount but um it must be genuinely recommended by the manufacturer or be the genuine price if if we were talking at a, a discounter or at an outlet centre, for example, then it must be the genuine price that it is sold mainly in the main high street or maybe on the website it is sold at that price. But if you go to a discount retail part, maybe, and you might find it cheaper against that high price, maybe out of season, it's it's last year's stock, it's out of season colours, etc etc so so then that that's when you would see an rrp and that was that that would they are the rules that you would expect it to comply with that it is a genuine recommended price by the manufacturer and that it has been generally for sale at that price whereas the other pricing practice you referred to would tend to be within a business's own high low pricing to say how long it should have been offered for at that price how many stores it should have been offered for at that price before it can be considered to be a genuine price that is then reduced there aren't any this is where the guidance 
didn't become specific because, as I mentioned, because of maximum harmonisation, so we didn't write it as such. But we would, I would always advise that it must have been for sale for at least as long as it's going to be included in a promotion. So if you want to run a sale, if your plan, your yearly plan is to have a sale over Easter, for example, on, um, I don't know, you'd you, your lawnmowers, then if you're going to offer that and you want to run that for the month around Easter, then you've got to have offered your lawnmowers at full price for at least a month running up to that sale. And I would say at um, the majority of your stores, not to just use one store. I mean, there was a prosecution on that years ago, the Officers Club prosecution, that, that it was just one store, I think, on Oxford Street that was offering its products at the high price and then they were being discounted everywhere else and that was seen that we, we still refer to that because that was that set in stone that the high price must be a genuine price and and to be to, to be able to be compared to and the specifics around how long and where really depend on on the on each situation on each retailer how they trade some retailers trade online as well as in the high street so you could compare one to the other providing that the online presence is is a big presence not just a small you know non-transactional website etc so it depends on the business but the main thing is that, that that it must be a genuine high price before it can be um then referred to as a, as a high price in a in a sale promotion situation and what about promotions in terms of things like prize draws and competitions is that something you advise on? In terms of my workload, if you like, then, yeah, that's something I advise on quite regularly. So it is something that, that yes, I advise on. It, it sort of crossover between trading standards and, and ASA in terms of enforcement. And, and it's about, is it described correctly? The ASA have a list of terms and conditions that must be included. So, yes, it's something I would I would advise on. The, the big challenges I've seen in relation to prize draws is the ones where people are, are raffling a house, a prize draw and the prize is a house. And there's been quite a lot of challenges about them because they've seen as been not being fair because I think one of the conditions is often if we don't sell enough tickets, then the prize isn't this house, it's something else. And obviously people are buying into a promotion, £5 ticket to get to possibly win a house. And then you find out you're not going to get a house, you're going to get a you know, hundred and fifty thousand or a, a small flat when the advert was for a you know million pound house in Mayfair or something. So, so the, they're the biggest ones I've seen challenged. But any any challenge like that, we would cert, I would certainly always consider the content of that challenge and then apply it to to advice I'm giving to to clients to make sure that ev- they're up to date with the latest rulings and and any um, interpretation of. Of regulations to, to make sure that they're complying as, as best they can to make sure the consumer is is treated fairly in those situations. How do you think compliance and enforcement have been affected by the emergence of disruptive new business models? I'm thinking of things like online marketplaces or peer-to-peer service providers where the business might be seen as an intermediary between consumers offering services to one another. Do you think perhaps some of the legislation has yet to keep up with developments in technology and consumer behaviour? Yeah, I think your last point is is very pertinent. It does take legislation when it's written, obviously can't take account of stuff we haven't even imagined yet. I mean, when you think um, when eBay first hit the waves 
it was something that that wasn't considered when the legislate when any legislation was written. So so everybody needed to catch up of how to apply um, legislation to different types. And and Airbnb is is a different one. And I know different countries and um, have, have struggled with with how that's affected their the, the ownership of apartments. Maybe in 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 you know cities like Prague or Paris, or people are finding it more and more easy to 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 rent places there so we're, we're expecting more of this and there's more um money to be made in, in those sorts of things so i mean in terms of me personally my clients i would have to say happily they don't um they aren't those sorts of businesses i don't envy trading stands professionals in enforcement trying to apply trying to advise these businesses trying to get to the the controlling mind of the business and affect compliance in that way i mean there are so many issues that we uh, become aware of um non-supply goods for example there's lots of intellectual property issues around items that are sold on ebay and online i've recently read about food being sold via eBay via Facebook, people supplying takeaways, and are they compliant? Have they taken any advice on food labelling? Because obviously, in terms of, I mean, specifically in terms of allergens, I mean, obviously they're they're as responsible as as a takeaway or as a big supermarket in terms of advising consumers about allergens. There's product safety issues if stuff's been imported from. Well, it doesn't need to be imported from abroad. It can be made here that doesn't comply. Cosmetics, maybe um, electrical products. There's other issues more around pricing issues, subscription traps where people sign up to buy, they see it on Facebook or on Instagram and they buy a moisturiser, say, and then they find out that they've actually, what they've actually done is sign up to buy a pot of this stuff at 30 quid ago once a month. So so those sorts of issues. So, so yeah, there, there are, it has enormously changed um, how trading standards um, work and how they enforce and the sheer amount of transactions that go on in that sort of field is astonishing and 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 really difficult to to keep control of and as i say the latest innovation is obviously something we've we've not we've not even imagined yet that that people are going to way people are going to buy or, or or what how they're going to buy it's you know i'm sure black cab drivers in london never thought that they'd be facing up to this you know the the challenge of Uber or you know holiday cottage people are challenge this challenge of Airbnb. So that, as I say, there are always new markets that that uh, that we we can't imagine that you never know what's coming up next. And that's it for another episode. Thanks to Wendy Potts for talking to us, and thank you for listening. Make sure you look out for part two in a fortnight's time with more advice from Wendy and a discussion of the food safety compliance landscape with BMG Section Representative Steve Emmett. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast or you just want to get in touch, send us an email to madetomeasure at jtsmag.uk. Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.